0: Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Matthew's Gospel. Today we're going to look at the first chapter together in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1. Let me get there. Uh, We've entered the season of Advent. Um, It wasn't apparent from the, the tree and the wreaths and the candles. You know, I had lunch with a friend this week who grew up in a denomination that uh, didn't do Advent and uh, he's now in a church that does and he said that um, he'd never seen one of these before. He'd never seen someone uh, light candles. It was a whole new experience. Some of you might be from a similar background. Um, you might be able to identify with him, and so I just want to remind you that Advent simply means uh, coming or arrival. You could define Advent as the coming of a notable person or event. Well, what notable person or event might we be recognizing and celebrating this time of the year? Uh, The most notable of persons, the one who's Name is above every name. The man, Christ Jesus, who appears and is born of Mary and takes on human flesh and dwells with his people and and comes uh, to do what? Love how this hymn says it. uh, This carol. Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. That's what he's come to do. And if you weren't with us last week, what we're doing uh, during this time of Advent is we're taking a break from our normal study in the book of Acts, and we're looking at the names of Jesus. Every name that is associated with the Lord is important. Those names tell us something of who he is and what he has done, And every one is meaningful, and they're given by God for a purpose. And last week, we looked at the name Emmanuel, and I took an extended excursus in Isaiah chapter 7, and I hope that that was profitable to you. Uh, But this week, we're going to look at the name Jesus. And it's my prayer that in becoming more familiar with the name Jesus, and in learning more about his name, it would become sweeter in your ears. It's my prayer that in learning and getting a fuller picture of the name Jesus, you could echo John Newton and say how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrow, heals his wounds, and drives away his fear. So we're going to look at the name of Jesus today, and it's my prayer that his name would grow sweeter in your ears and that it would drive away your fears and uh, bring you rest. But before we do that, let's pray. Father God, apart from your spirit, apart from your spirit working, I am a bag of hot air or a stuffed-up monotone noise. Father, we are dependent upon you, and so we ask that you would send your spirit this morning, that he would work through the preaching of your word to bring light and life to your people, to bring encouragement and assurance that in seeing more clearly the man Jesus Christ, we, your people, would find rest in the Savior. Would you do this? for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to begin in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man, Jesus. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. So what we're going to do today is exclusively focus on verse 21, and really the last two-thirds of verse 21. Uh, That wonderful verse, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And that's really the outline of our sermon. You could divide it into two parts. Part one is, you shall call his name Jesus. And part two is, for he will save his people from their sins. So we'll first begin by looking directly at the name Jesus. And I guess the first question is to ask, is who chooses this name? You know, ordinarily, parents are the ones that choose names for their children. Uh, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of fun to, to think about and to throw names around and have ideas. It, it's an important thing because the name is going to be with that child for the rest of their lives. And so we begin with the question, who chooses Jesus' name? And We can see it here. God does. Not Mary, not Joseph. God is the one who chooses Jesus. This name, we, we just read, an angel speaking to Joseph saying, you shall call his name Jesus. The angel is telling Joseph what Joseph is going to do. And we, we have a parallel account in, in Luke's gospel. Gabriel, uh, the angel, approaches Mary and gives her a very similar message. He approaches Mary and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So in both of these instances... We have Mary and Joseph instructed what name they are to call this child. Now, is this a recommendation? No. Is it a suggestion? No. Is this a family name that a grandparent is passive-aggressively pressuring on Mary and Joseph? No. This is a command from God. You will have a son, and this is what you will name him. God is the one who chooses the name because this is his son. This is his only begotten son. This is his child who is destined to perfectly, fully fulfill his plan of redemption. So God is the one who chooses the name. And if he chooses this name, why this name? And you may not know this is a common name. Now, I know it's not common today. The name of Jesus has been venerated through church history. I've known a couple Hispanic people named Jesus, but I don't think I've ever met someone in English named Jesus. It's it's not a common name in our day. But in the first century, it was quite common, right? It was was one of those names. I, I got online and looked up most common English names. None of these will surprise you. My name was up there uh, you, so many people have been named John. You have other names like, uh, like Michael and James and Robert and William. These are all common names in our day. And in Jesus' day, his name was common. There's a reason he's called Jesus of Nazareth. His hometown is attached to his name to distinguish him from other Jesuses. There's a first-century historian named Josephus, and you can look at his writings and see lots of people named Jesus. This was a common name among Jews in the first century. Now, in time, again, as Christians uh, come to know and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, you have less and less Jews using the name Jesus, but it was quite common. So, it's a common name. Why would God use it? Why... Pick this comment. You'd think the Son of God taking on human flesh. You'd think there'd be this grand, exalted name. Like I thought of Xerxes, for example. Xerxes, uh, one of the kings of the Achaemenid Persian Empire, and his name uh, means "ruler of heroes." What a name! The ruler of heroes. God doesn't pick a name like Xerxes. He picks a common name. It tells us something of his humility, his his condescension, but it it also tells us something of his mission. We'll get to that in a moment. You know, he was being named after one of the names, I'm sorry, one of of the reasons this name was so common is because you're named after an Old Testament hero. Now, some of you may scratch your head at that and say, well, I don't know any Old Testament heroes named Jesus. I know you, you, you talk about the angel of the Lord showing up and the second person of the Trinity in the Old Testament showing up, but I, I, don't, know any, I don't know any Old Testament heroes that share his name. Well, I was trying to think of the easiest way to explain this, and it, it can be explained this way. You can have a name that can be spelled and pronounced differently in different languages. Like, my name is super easy here because it's very common. It, anyone know the Spanish uh, version of the name John? Juan. What about French? Jean. Uh, what? German. Johann. I found this all very interesting because it's, <laughs> it's, it's my name. R- Russian. It's Ivan. I had, I had no idea. Um, Giovanni in Italian. You can have the same name, but it sounds differently and is spelled differently in different languages. Well, what if we apply that to the name Jesus? We refer to our Savior as Jesus in English, but what about in the Greek? In Paul's day, what name is Paul saying as he's he's contending in the marketplace in the synagogue for the Son of God? It was Jesus in the Greek. That's the name Paul would have spoken. Jesus on his missionary journeys. Well, then you have Aramaic, which is the language of first century Jews. The language that Mary and Joseph would have spoken. And in Aramaic, this name is Yesu. Yesu. Well, what about the Old Testament language? Hebrew. What would this name be in Hebrew? Well, you've got an earlier version, and then later it's shortened. The earlier version of this name is Yehoshua. Yehoshua. And then later after the exile, it's just Yeshua. Okay. What does that name sound like? What, what Old Testament name, what Old Testament hero of the faith does Yehoshua or Yeshua sound like? Joshua? Joshua? The same Joshua who succeeds Moses and leads the people across the Jordan River and into the Promised Land? Yehoshua. You can see why this name would be commonly used among Jewish parents. Well, why would God pick it? Is he choosing to pay homage to this faithful Old Testament saint? I'm going to honor Joshua by naming my only begotten son after him. No, no. This name was chosen because of what it means. When you cut Yehoshua in half, the first half is Yah. What does Yah stand for? Yahweh. The covenant name of God, the name given to Moses at the burning bush. Whenever you're reading your Old Testament and you see the Lord, but L-O-R-D is in all caps, that's Yahweh. And so that's the first half, Yah, Yahweh. And then the second half, Shua, means salvation. So in Yehoshua, you have Yahweh saves. And that's the name assigned to this child in Mary's womb, Yahweh saves. And we're going to see more meaning of that in a moment. But before we do... We need to point out that although Jesus is receiving the same name that so many other little Jewish boys had been given, there's something very different in his case. And of course you have the virgin birth. That's not even what I'm talking about. If you think in Luke's account, when Gabriel comes to Mary, Gabriel tells her she will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And then Gabriel says, he will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. You hear something like that, and you think, okay, this isn't just another kid who is named Joshua because his parents want him to be or measure up to Joshua. This is something entirely different. This isn't just another Joshua. This is someone greater than Joshua. We remember stories about Joshua. Joshua in the battle of Jericho. The servant of the Lord who transitioned the children of Israel from the wilderness into the promised land. Takes them into the land that God swore to give to Abraham so that God's people might have rest. Did Joshua succeed? Yes, for a time. For a time he succeeded. The people entered the land, they took it, they settled it, and they had rest for a time. But it will not last. Enemies will creep back in. Unbelief will creep back in. Other armies will come into the land and invade it and destroy Jerusalem and Kill some of God's people and take the rest into captivity. And the people are left longing for a greater servant. A greater Joshua who can do what Joshua could not. Someone who could defeat their enemies permanently. Someone who would give them lasting rest, not only for a season. Eternal rest. And we know that that greater Joshua has come. And what does he say about rest, this greater Joshua? He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. In me you will find rest for your souls. They longed for greater Joshua that would give them rest and also greater Joshua that would lead them into a glorious land that they would never lose. Somewhere better than Canaan, a heavenly country, an eternal city whose designer and builder is God. And we have a promise from that greater Joshua. He said, let not your hearts be troubled, Troubled, believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And I go to prepare a place for you. And I will come again to take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I want you to see that this isn't just another kid named after a hero. He is the hero. He is the complete, perfect fulfillment of everything this name represents. He is the greatest Joshua. That's why God chose this name. You will name your child Yahweh saves. And we see that in detail in the second half of this verse. For he will save his people from their sins. This is the purpose of the child's coming. This baby that is currently in utero was conceived... So that he could be born to save his people from their sins. From the very beginning, his life has a predestined purpose. This was God's plan from the start. It's why he was given the name. And so we're going to talk about this purpose, this plan of salvation the Lord has. And the first thing we see is that he will save. Who does the saving? He does. He's the hero. He is the rescuer. He does the saving. And not only does he do the saving, he is the only Savior. Meaning we do not save ourselves. No one else can save us. Only Jesus can save us. And so we are to look for salvation in no one else except Jesus. And isn't this the repeated message of Scripture that we see over and over again? It's the repeated message that we read of Acts taking to this or that Peter taking to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4. Peter says, There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus alone. His name alone that saves love the grand statement that God makes in Isaiah 43. He says, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Jesus himself will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What we see over and over and over again in Scripture is that there is only one Savior. The man, Jesus Christ. And we're going to be tempted at times to think to forget this and think that there are things that we can do to get across the river into the promised land. There are things that we do. My faithfulness, my good behavior, my, my, uh, my charity, my generosity, these are things that I do to earn my ticket into the heavenly land and earn my eternal rest. But we are wrong to think that. We are deluded to think that. And we need to confess those things and repent of them because we don't do any saving. He will save. Now, who will he save? We see. He will save his people, his bride, the church, and not only the Presbyterians, and not only the PCA, but the church. Recently I was listening to a talk by Harry Reeder who was the pastor of Briarwood in Birmingham and he made a statement about the church being a 10-lane highway and our denomination only making up one lane. Now, I don't think the point for you is to or the point is not for you to take that and try to figure out okay, who are the who's in the other nine lanes. That's not the point he was trying to make. Right? He was reminding us that there are other faithful Christians who are pursuing Christ and trusting in him alone for their salvation. But there's a whole highway, and we make up one lane. And that highway, the church, the body of Christ, the people of God, those are the ones that Jesus will save. And what does he save them from? He will save them from their sins. This is why he has come. Now I want you to be honest with me for a second. How many of you have ever hired someone to clean your house and then you cleaned it before they got there? Maybe it was a busy season in life and things are just backing up on you at home and you can't do what you normally do. Do or, or maybe you just had surgery or just had a baby or something has happened and you're getting someone to come clean your house. And before they get there, you run, you straighten everything up and you do all this cleaning so there's not that much left for the actual cleaner. The whole reason they're coming is to clean your house and then you clean it up. Okay, your connection to the cleaner is your dirty house. That's why they're coming. Okay? They aren't coming to dust your tidy house. They're coming to clean your messy house. That's the connection. Okay? It is the same way with our Savior. But we try to hide our sin. We try to clean it up on our own. We have this idea, oh, well, I can't go back to church right now. I'm not in the right place. I need to get myself right and then I can go back. Your sin is the reason he came. Okay, it is so silly to think that your connection to the person cleaning your house is not the mess in your house. Your connection to the Lord Jesus is the mess in your life, it is your sin. He's not coming because of your good reputation and your upstanding life. He came because of your mess. I love this quote from Spurgeon. I'm hitting Spurgeon a lot here at the end. But Spurgeon has this wonderful quote. He says, quote, He is called Savior in connection with his people, but it is in reference to their sins because it is their sins from which they need to be saved. If they had never sinned, they would never have required a savior and there would be no name of Jesus upon the earth, end quote. Can you see that? Our connection to the Lord is based on the fact that we are weak, needy sinners in need of salvation. It is why he came. And if we don't get that, we will not get grace. We will not get the purpose of Jesus' life. If you do not believe that you will perish without him, that you are lost without him, if you don't believe that, you don't understand the purpose for which Jesus came. Spurgeon continues, and get ready. If you won't rest... And if you want the name of Jesus to be sweet in your ears, listen to this. Spurgeon says, quote, He never gave himself for our righteousness, but he did give himself for our sins. What a wonder this is. The first link between my soul and Christ is not my goodness, but my badness. Not my merit, but my misery. Not my standing, but my falling. Not my riches, but my need. He comes to visit his people, yet not to admire their beauties, but to remove their deformities. Not to reward their virtues, but to forgive their sins. End quote. That's why he came. And some of you feel like you have to get your life together, like you have to get the house clean before the cleaner comes that you have to conquer and kick out some sins before you can come to Christ. But your mess is the reason he came. He didn't come to dust your tidy, picked up, organized house. He came for the train wreck that is your and my life. And so would you come to him and open the door and say, this is me. This is my mess. I'm ashamed of my mess and I'm embarrassed of my mess, but I know this is why you came. And so would you come and do that which you came to do, seek and save the lost. This is why he came. He came for our sin. Now, what is this saving us from our sins? What does that look like? Well, again, Spurgeon gives a list that I'm going to follow, a list of four things that we're going to look at before we close. This idea, What does it look like to save us from our sins? Well, the first thing is that Jesus saves us from what our sins deserve. What do our sins deserve? Our sins deserve death. Paul writes in Romans 6.23 that wages of sin is death. In the garden, God is speaking to Adam and Eve, and He says, You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Our sins deserve death. And if we die in our sins, if we die unforgiven, with the mess still surrounding us, without the work of the Savior, Then, to quote the larger catechism, the punishment is everlasting separation from the comforting presence of God and most grievous torments in soul and body without relief in hellfire forever. But Jesus Christ came to save his people from their sins and to save them from the punishment of their sins. So that all charges against his bride, the church, would be removed. And she would never be condemned. All that is required is that the church, is that you would believe and trust in him alone and what he did in your place. That the greater Joshua, who was sinless, took your sin and bore its punishment so that the curse might be removed from you. So Jesus saves us from what our sins deserve. The second thing Spurgeon lists is that he saves us from the pollution of our sin. You know, sin pollutes everything. You know, you can see the effects of sin in creation. In Romans 8, Paul writes that creation is groaning as it longs for the return of Christ so that he can make all things new. So sin has marred creation and polluted creation, but it's also marred us as well. We are polluted. You know, we'll use the term, as Presbyterians will use the term total depravity, and people will mistakenly think, oh, well, you're saying that, that means that I'm as bad as I could possibly be. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity means that there is not one part of you that is unaffected by sin, that your mind, your will, your affections, every part of you is in some way affected by sin, polluted by sin. Sin has polluted our minds so that we don't honor or give thanks to God. And we ignore and deny the Creator. To use the language of Romans 1, our thinking becomes futile. So it pollutes our mind, it pollutes our tastes, what we like, what we're attracted to, what we think is funny, what we're drawn to, what, what entertains us. Sin has polluted that as well. Our consciences. Sin deadens the conscience, makes us hard of heart, But Jesus has come to save his people from the pollution of sin. He doesn't leave us polluted as we are. He takes the evil away. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, he renews our mind. He washes us with his word. He he removes the heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a, a tender heart. And once it's removed, sin becomes repugnant to our senses. We hate it. We, we, we want to be rid of it. And we have in its place a longing for holiness and a desire to be made clean. And so he doesn't just take the punishment of sin away and, and leave us. He removes the trash and filth that pollutes our lives and in the end is making us fit to live with him forever in heaven. He removes the punishment of sin. He removes the pollution of sin. Third thing Spurgeon says is that he saves his people from their tendencies to sin. So it's one of the most frustrating things as a Christian. These proclivities we have towards sin. These inclinations or natural bents toward sin. And these two, Jesus Christ has come to destroy grabbing those sinful tendencies and yanking them up by the roots and sending his spirit to work in our lives and enable us to fight and war against those inclinations until the day when Jesus Christ alone reigns and all our thoughts are captive to him. So he's saving us from the dominion of sin, the the tendencies to sin. The fourth thing, this is the last one, The fourth thing Jesus saves his people from is apostasy. And what apostasy is, it is leaving the faith, denying the Lord, walking away from the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Jesus saves his people from apostasy. He came To save sinners, not only in their younger years, but in their later gray-haired or no-haired years as well. He does not save us in our youth and then just leave us be that we might fall or wander off on our own. No, he saves sinners to the end. He holds his people to the end. The good shepherd will not allow one of his sheep to be snatched out of his hand. He will not allow one to perish. He says, not one. No one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. He saves to the end. And Spurgeon comments here and says, to start a man right is but little. But to keep that man holding on even to the end is a triumph of almighty grace. And this is what Christ has come to do to keep us to the end. Now, when we read that verse, you shall call his name Jesus and he will save his people from their sins. Are you one of his people? Important questions to ask. Do you even think you need salvation? Do you recognize how lost you would be without him? Do you recognize that you would perish apart from the work of Jesus? Have you clung to the cross and said, this and this alone is what removes my stain In my guilt and gives me life. When you flee to Christ and confess your sins to him, he will save you from them. And if you believe in him, he will become your salvation. Now for those of you who have and are trusting in him, It's my prayer that you would see in all of this the tender mercy of our Lord. He didn't call himself Christ the Great or Christ the King of the Heroes or Christ the Conqueror. He called himself Christ Jesus, Christ the Savior. That's why he came. There's a verse many of you are probably familiar with. John three seventeen, which states, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is why he came, and it is a delight to him. I pray that we can see that and be glad. I want to end with a final quote. This is from Caspar Olivianus. He was one of the two authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, what we've been going through earlier in the worship service. And Olivianus on this verse, he said this, since God who cannot lie commanded from heaven that his son manifested in the flesh be given this name Jesus, that is Savior, I know for certain and have the assurance that he fully and perfectly saves me, body and soul. Faithful is he who bears the splendid name, Jesus. He will do what he promised. Let's pray together. Father God, would we see more clearly the man, the Savior, whom you gave the name Jesus Christ, your anointed one, your chosen one who has come to save his people from their sins, would we see him, and Father, I, with his name, I'd be sweet in our ears, knowing the the truth of who we are apart from his grace, and then seeing uh, what, uh, seeing his person and, and work of who he is and what he has done? Father, would we flee to him day after day? And would we find immense comfort in that he is God, and He will save us to the end? and no one will snatch us out of his hand? Would we find rest? In the name of Jesus, would our souls be comforted in this truth we ask in his name. Amen.